This podcast is brought to you by MedCloud. Get connected, cyber safe. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this very special Australian edition of the Vanguard podcast, where I'm joined by fellow Antipodean Andrew Grill, who is a London-based practical futurist and former IBM Global Managing Partner, as well as a keynote speaker and trusted board-level technology advisor. Andrew has had a broad career spanning over 30 years in large corporates such as IBM, British Aerospace and Telstra, as well as 12 years running technology startups, and is a highly experienced authority on a wide range of topics relating to technology trends and the digital world. And since 2000, Andrew has been providing advice, opinion, and the latest thinking on all things digital and the impact on business and society via his blog, his podcast, and his website, as well as numerous keynote speeches globally. Andrew, thank you for joining me this morning. And for the first time ever on the Vanguard podcast, 100% Aussie contingent. Scott, it's great to be here. Nice to hear another Australian accent. It's fantastic. And you look outside and you look at the rain and the sun. Yeah, okay. It's not Australian weather, is it? It's just like Melbourne, isn't it? (laughs) We're not going to get into that, are we? Adelaide versus Melbourne, you know, that kind of thing. You do have better wine, though. There's no doubt about that. Absolutely. I have to invite you to a South Australia Club event very soon so you can sample it in London, but that's that's for another time. <laughs> that is for another time, and I accept already, by the way. Andrew, thank you. And, and you know, I've I've listened to a lot of your podcasts and a lot of your keynotes that are online, and we've spoken now about various things. And, you know, you've worked for large companies like Telstra, IBM in the technology space. You've been involved in half a dozen startups, but where did the passion for talking about tech and the future come from? And why did you move halfway across the world to do so? Yeah, some great questions. Look, my passion for technology started way back in Adelaide. I'm from Adelaide and you're from Melbourne. Yep. Um, and I have to thank my father, Ron, who, who really ignited my curiosity. I can actually remember as a six-year-old playing around with little lamps, battery-operated lamps. We would uh, connect them in series and connect them in parallel and look at how bright they were. I had a little logbook where we wrote down these experiments. So as a very young boy, I was fascinated by technology. I actually had one of those you know, electronics kits where you built a radio and those sort of things. I ended up studying engineering, and so I'm a bit of a geek, but I worked out fairly early on that while I understood technology, my passion was actually in explaining it and, and teaching and training. And so um, I actually worked for British Aerospace in Australia on a satellite project, and then I went to work for Optus in their satellite area back in the sort of mid-90s. I remember actually three weeks into to working one of the roles, I was on a contract for, for three months, and they said, look, after three weeks, we really like you. Do you want to join us full-time? So I joined Optus, uh, the number two telco in Australia, worked in their training department, worked in business development, developing huge national data products, then moved to Telstra, which is the number one carrier in Australia. So all the way along, I've had a real passion for technology because I play with it, and that, I suppose, helps being a futurist. But the other angle as to how I've been working as a futurist is when I was doing my leaving, my year 12 matriculation English essay, we had to do an essay on a topic and I chose the future. And so I looked at Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, Crockwork Orange, 1984 and Animal Farmers, four books that typified what the future might look like. And in fact, I remember doing, we called them web series or webinodes back then in 2000 for Telstra. And the lady who introduced me, introduced me as a futurist. So I suppose for the last 35 or so years, I've been fascinated by technology I've been fascinated by what the future holds. And to your second part of the question, why would I move halfway around the world? Well, after Telstra and Optus, I worked for six different high-tech startups. One of them was involved with location-based services. And from Sydney, when I moved after Adelaide, my first client was Vodafone in Newbury, England. And so I was on a plane every three weeks, Sydney, London, Sydney, London. And the company at the time said, 
why don't we move you over there to set up our London office and move the family over and have been here since uh, 2006. So 15 years in London, I'm a dual citizen and I've got the passport. Awesome. Same with me, really. Um, dual passports, which means that we've got the best of both worlds, right? We have. Although I did like that brown one that allowed me to go all through Europe, but that's yeah. a whole other story. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's a completely different story. Absolutely. Just on the futurist bit, mm. we've all read most of 1984 and, and Animal Farm, but you know, 1984 is one of those books where you read it again now and you think, wow, mm. just wow, because it was so forward thinking when he wrote it. Or wrote it when, 1942 or 1945 or yeah. something like that? Yeah. As a futurist, are you constantly surprised how many times you read something or you've read something and thought, well, that's really happened. That's actually happened. These people have seen the light or have seen what's going to happen You know, so far down the track. Does that constantly surprise you? Or are you in a state where you think, you know what, these people are very bright people and they just know what's going on? Well, they're very bright people and forward thinkers. And I look back to my favourite futurist, Arthur C. Clarke. He famously co-wrote Space Odyssey 2001 with Stanley Kubrick. And there's a whole story about that movie. And, and so I went back and studied some of his work and actually came across an interview that an Australian journalist did in 1974. And the journalist said, look, you've, you've written this, this movie 2001. What will life be like in 2001? And it's a three-minute video. And in fact, it started one of the Jobs movies. They actually play the three-minute interview in full. It's in black and white from a, an ABC journalist. And he literally explained the internet. He explained how we wouldn't have to go into work. We wouldn't have to live in cities. We could work remotely. We'd have a terminal in our home. And Arthur C. Clarke also famously predicted the use of satellites back in the early 50s. So these people are, are forward thinking. I suppose the challenge and why I look at practical or pragmatic futurism is that a lot of my clients are saying, look, you know, Arthur C. Clarke, he predicted this and it happened 30 years later. But we haven't got 30 years to wait. So the challenge I find when everyone says, oh, you're a futurist, Andrew, their immediate stereotype is, well, you're going to look at things so far out that they're not tangible. Mm. And a lot of my clients can't wait 30 years, 30, 30 months, maybe not even 30 days. They want to know, how do I close a quarter? How do I protect my staff this week, next month? So the challenge there is, as, as you say, acknowledging this great work and foresight that people have had, but bringing it back to the real world where we need to know now what to do next. It's a really good point. You know, one of the things that I've, as part of my podcast, is I ask three quick fire questions. By the way, you're going to get them at the end of this podcast too. Oh, wow. But one of the questions I, I asked one of my guests was, what's one thing that you thought would have happened by now? And, and I've actually asked this in the pub with friends or it comes up at barbecues and everyone thought the Back to the Future hoverboards would have been out by now, mm. you know. But we're not talking about that kind of futurist, are we? We're talking about how we work, how we interact with people, what's going to happen and far as, you know, are we going back in the office, that kind of thing. It's not about mm. the future of technology as such, is it? It's about the future of everything, just life in general, right? Well, as a futurist, strange things happen. And so I actually remember January 2020, I was standing at the top of the Gherkin building in London, giving a presentation to a law firm and their clients. And they'd asked me to look at the decade ahead. And so I talked about how, I actually did talk about the future of work. And I said, these things will probably happen in five to seven years. I had no idea, maybe this is me as a bad futurist, that six weeks later we would be locked down. So what the pandemic has done for a futurist is they've pushed the fast forward button 10 years. And so where we all predicted that, yes, we would have a distributed workforce, we would find it normal to be working from home. The pandemic globally has said, we're going to force you to work from home. And this is the world's largest global work from home experiment. What's happening now, we might talk about, and I've got real-world examples with my friends who are now debating, do they go back into the office? A friend of mine yesterday went back into the office because she had to actually sign something in person for the first time in 12 months. And I said to her, what was it like? She said, 
it was a strange experience, mm. but I don't know that I want to do that every day because she's become comfortable that she can actually work remotely and get work done. Yeah. So the challenge then is what will work look like? And we can talk about that in more detail, but I suppose as a futurist, the positive that's come out of it is all the things we predicted, the fast forward button was pushed and here we are. It's a good point, isn't it? Because I, I guess being in the technology game, we've always had the ability of working from home or working remotely because we're either on a plane or we're traveling or or whatever. But it seems to me that everyone now wants to have that work-life balance of being able to go into the office or being able to work at nine o'clock at night once the kids have been put down to sleep or whatever. So the world or the way we work really has changed, hasn't it? Totally. But the challenge is, and I get this all the time, Andrew, we like working from home, but what about when we need that social interaction, when we want to collaborate? And I talk a lot about the notion of a third place. Now, the third place concept is not new. Howard Schultz, the former CEO of Starbucks, talked about this a long time ago. He wanted Starbucks to be that third place. So it wasn't the kitchen table. It wasn't the high-rise building in Scary Wharf. It was somewhere in between. And so again, where's the future of work gone? We might want to go into work a couple of days a week, but we also might want to work in the third place. And is it that there is actually a way to come together as a group of people who live in a similar area? I mean, if you had a sandwich shop in the center of London right now, the last 12 months have been pretty dire. But if you have a sandwich shop in the suburbs, happy days, because that's where people are. So the the notion of this third place, uh, recently Nationwide Bank have said, we will let you work from anywhere. So essentially, they've said, "You you can have a third place. You can have the kitchen table. You can have our office in Swindon, or you can have somewhere in between. And to your point, being a bit of a digital nomad, I've been working out of the office for years, balancing my laptop on the arm of the hospital club or a Starbucks or being in an airport somewhere. I've worked out how to get work done remotely. It's just in the last 12 months, every single person was forced to do that whether they wanted to or not. Yeah. So this, this notion of the third place might be where maybe one day a week or might be Friday afternoon, we all come together to either the office or the third place, but we want to have that interaction. We want to have that stolen coffee moment that we aren't able mm-hmm. to have at the moment. And I think that's what people are missing. The introverts are loving working at home. The extroverts like you and me are craving yeah. that social interaction. For sure. Uh, or the water cooler conversations or the yeah. drive-by coaching or, or whatever. You're walking past someone, hey, Scott, can I just grab you for five minutes? Yes. yes, you can. But how do I grab you for five minutes? Got to set up a Zoom call. Got to wait for you to answer. Got to do my hair. It's, <laughs> it's just more effort. There are barriers in the way yes. of having that stolen moment. Absolutely agree. Let's talk about the workplace for a minute. And I'm hearing a lot of companies saying, you know what, we're, we're just not going to open up offices anymore. We, go, we are going to use those third places. We're going to use, you know, a Regis spaces or we're going to use a WeWork where we can get together and, and hire a room for a couple of hours and people are just going to work from home. So what does the workplace of the future look like? And are we going to go back to commuting? I'm really struggling to see how commuting and going into an office is ever going to be the same ever again. Maybe in seven years or five years or three years, it's going to be different. But I'm just really struggling to see that going back to normality for a long time. Well, there are two ends of the spectrum. If you read what the CEO of Goldman Sachs has said, he thinks that for their business, remote working doesn't work. And he might be right, but they run Mm. a very different business. It's more transactional and relationship-based. I think what we've learned is that we can distribute work. Look at my industry, the, the speaking industry. Normally, what would happen is I would get an inquiry from someone in Australia. They'd say, we'd love you to come to Australia to speak. Going all the way to Sydney to speak for an hour or two or do a few engagements is fairly inefficient. But I can do a talk in Australia, which I did for Adobe uh, a few months ago in the morning. I can then do a talk in uh, the UK in the, at lunchtime, and I can then do something in another part of the world in the evening. Yeah. So you're actually able to access talent you've never had access to before. I, I had on my podcast a few weeks ago, Gabrielle from Braintrust. And now you don't have to work in Silicon Valley. You can get the best talent anywhere in the world. So I think that's going to change things. 
The challenge will be collaboration. Now, when I was at IBM, I ran a collaboration consulting team globally. We would go into a bank or an airline or a tech company, and we would look at their use of the collaboration tools like Slack or Chatter or, or Workplace by Facebook. And nine times out of 10, people would say, Andrew, just hasn't worked. But it hasn't been the technology. It's been the culture. So the challenge is now, how can we make our culture work in a remote, distributed way? And one of the things I talk about a lot is the notion of working out loud. Again, not my concept. John Stepper wrote a great book on this where you use the internal social network to broadcast to the rest of the organization what you're working on. Now, initially, that can be quite uncomfortable because if you're from the generation I'm from, where information is power, you don't tell people what you're working on. However, the young leaders of the future that actually overshare on their own social networks come to work and are told, no, you can't share. There's got to be a middle ground where you can actually get work done by telling people what you're doing and not breach confidentiality. Because I've got to tell you, at IBM, what would happen is I would say, you know, I'm going to go to HSBC tomorrow to talk to so-and-so about whatever. Who's dealt with them before? Overnight, I would be deluged with slide decks and people to talk to. I would basically have access at IBM to 400,000 people globally. So how do we get our teams not just working effectively because we're able to pass work between them? So for example, my friend that had to go into the office, she had to cite some documents for a Know Your Customer, KYC. Yeah. Why can't you use eSign or DocuSign or those sort of things to do that workflow? But my point is, it's not natural to collaborate and tell people what you're working on. We can't necessarily see each other in between Zoom calls. So how do you get work done and pass that around the world and follow the sun? So I think that's the one thing that will change. People will work out how to break down silos. And an interesting thing, I think it was Gabriel also said, that the type of manager that lends themselves to manage teams better in a distributed workforce is actually an introvert. You've got the extrovert who always wants to, you know, rah, 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 and have the team around them. Maybe we're going to have a lot more introverted managers who are a little more accustomed to not having to have people sitting next to them to ensure that work's getting done. Oh, I love that. That's a podcast in itself right there. Mm. I have three friends now who shall remain nameless who have bought mouse wigglers. Why? Because they have to be, air quotes, seen to be working. So mm, yeah. the uh, instant messaging has got to say they're available. And the mouse wiggler, every 30 seconds, minutely moves the mouse so that it doesn't go to sleep. Yeah. And I'm seeing that. I'm going, hang on, hang on, hang on. You are faking moving a mouse because you want to go and brush your teeth or put the load of washing on. You don't want to be people to think that you're not working. That's presenteeism. So mm. how can we actually trust our distributed workforce give them a better work-life balance and trust they're going to get the work done. I think that is a monumental problem because why do bosses want people back in the office? So they can see that they're working. One of the startups I work for, we had a, an investor who wanted to see us in the office. And I said to them, you have the best use of me when I'm out in front of a customer doing a deal. Yeah. So yeah. don't make me come into the office and sit there just so that the investor thinks that we're working. I think when we break that down, we're going to have a really, really powerful workforce. I think that is a fantastic point. I speak to many, many, many managed service providers, MSPs, every day. And one of the things that I spoke to a couple of MSPs about was, how do I know if my sales teams are working? Well, I said the easiest one is to see if they're bringing in revenue. That's a pretty easy metric to judge. Yep. But for me, is th there's a massive trust issue. You know, they're saying that they need to get software to see if their team's working. Well, in my opinion, they either shouldn't be running a company or the people that they have within their company are not the right people because they don't trust them. Yep. And to have a mouse wiggler or something like that, to me, just reeks of a massive intrinsic issue within that business. Yes. So, But here's the point. Uh, interesting study. So Gartner last year did a study of 3,600 B2B decision makers globally, different industries, different countries. B2B buyers like being sold to remotely. 
50% thought it was more efficient. And in fact, the survey said 79% would actually do this once the pandemic is over. So here's the newsflash. You are going to be selling through the screen for some time to come. You're not going to be able to call on your client or your prospect. So you're going to have to work out how to sell through the screen. And I actually do a whole seminar on this. And part of it is your digital first impression. Now, you thankfully have done a lot of research on me. The things you've said that you've listened to, clearly you've done your research. But the very first time Ian said, you need to talk to Andrew, I'm sure the first thing he did was put my name into Google or into LinkedIn. Yep. And what you saw was my digital first impression. Correct. And I think salespeople have to work out that actually before they utter the first breath of their sales pitch, their prospect has already seen who they are. So what do you look like on LinkedIn? What do you look like on social media? What do you look like on your company website? What is your digital first impression? Because essentially, you're selling very, very similar things, but I want to buy from you, Scott, or you, Andrew. So I think what we're going to see is the smart sellers are going to be even smarter because before they are even pitching, they know that they can solve a problem. So for example, on your LinkedIn profile, I haven't seen yours. Mm -hmm. It'll probably say what your job is. What I suggest people do is they say, yes, what their job is. And the second sentence in the headline is how I can help you. That means that when I'm reading that digital first impression, I've seen the photograph, I've seen where you work, I've seen the headline. It actually says, this is how I can help your business. That's how selling will change post-pandemic. I love that. Actually, one of the questions I want to ask you is about the course and the program you have called Selling Through the Screen. This is obviously an online course. You know, We've all got our sales methodology, be it Sandler or whatever, but what you're saying is we can't even get into that phase of the sales cycle until our first impression online is something that's going to engage the prospect in order to have those decent conversations and discovery calls. Absolutely. What brought out that from the Gartner study was that people want to actually understand that you have some thought leadership, that you're going to bring something to the table. Because if you're selling cybersecurity software, you're selling workforce management software, it's going to do a similar thing. But why do I buy it from you? Because you know more about my industry, know more about my business and how you can help me. And that's the reason why B2B buyers are saying we prefer this online method of selling because I can actually self-serve. I don't have to have you in my office, pour you a cup of coffee, realize after 15 minutes what you're selling me isn't what I want. I can pre-qual what I'm doing in terms of what I want to buy. I can work out whether I want to buy it from you because are you going to help me? At my old company, Telstra, what they've done is set up some really interesting thought leadership websites where it's very lightly branded Telstra, but it is about cybersecurity or about CISOs or those sort of things. And they basically provide help and advice and the community develops great content, by the way, brought to you by Telstra. And that's a really soft way of selling and proving that you have thought leadership. If data had a sound... It could be this, the sound of important and sensitive information leaking out of your business. MedCloud, get connected, cyber safe. CyberSafe is our mantra. From tailored, managed security solutions to our next-generation cloud platform, MetCloud will drive your organization forward and help it thrive. You can keep up to date with us in all things cybersecurity by following us on Twitter at MetCloud underscore com. We're also on LinkedIn and YouTube. 
You can find the links to our social media pages and blogs via our website, metcloud.com. In the mainstream news now on the BBC or Sky News or whatever, the, the public, you know, Joe Public now is hearing about cybersecurity, Internet of Things, phishing attacks. You know, when I speak to people outside the industry, and I'm changing a little bit of a tact here, but people just don't understand what's going on with cybercrime and cybersecurity. So the question I wanted to ask you here was, do you think our industry or the tech industry is doing enough to educate the dangers of cybercrime? And do you think people are aware that this mass availability of information that's now out there on the web, do people understand how they need to protect that or what they need to do to, to ensure that that information is protected? In a word, no. Okay. And this is a hobby horse of mine. And whenever I would do my talks, I talk about the notion of cybersecurity, but I talk about it from a very personal point of view. Unless you've been had your house broken into, you don't really think about the locks that you use or the burglar alarm you use because once it's happened, you go, mm, don't want this to happen again because it was bad. And the people I've spoken to, and I know people personally that have had their email hacked and then nasty messages sent to 800 people in their contact book, but people don't like that because it's disruptive. So what I do on stage uh, or online is I direct them to a website called Have I Been Pwned, run by an Australian called Troy Hunt in Australia. He basically has built a database of all the data breaches. So the email addresses, the passwords that have been leaked, he's put them in a database that's searchable. So you can go on there and type your email address in, or if you're game enough, your password, and he will tell you whether it's been exposed. So I encourage people to do that. And when I was doing this in person, I would have people come up to me in the coffee break. The only thing they'd remember from my 45-minute talk was, oh, I've just looked in how I've been pwned and, and I've been compromised. At that point, you've got the executive of a company, an airline, a bank, um, a service provider who was going, I need to worry about this. This I'm talking about from two years ago. Fast forward to the pandemic, you've now got people working at home. They're all working off an unsecured BT router or a Virgin router that hackers love to go and find ways into. And you've got other people working on the network. I had a, a friend of mine whose young son has been doing stuff on Minecraft. Long story, but I worked out that there were extra instances being spun up inside that network. That's bad because you've then got a corporate person working on something for a big company. And on the same network, weird stuff's happening. I was able to trap that and, and see what was going on, but I know what I'm doing. And I run enterprise-grade Wi-Fi. I have Unify Wi-Fi networks throughout my whole house, and I've got seven networks around the world of my friends. So I, I secure my friend's network, but I know what I'm doing. So unless you've had an attack, um, you, you don't understand how important it is. One thing I ask people to do is secure their social media accounts with two-factor. Every social media account you use, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, has the ability to turn on two-factor because it's a bit like a bike that's outside a shop. One's got a padlock on it, one hasn't. Which one are you going to steal? You're going to steal the one that's easiest to get into. So I think it comes down to having people personally understand that the employees are the last mile of the problem. And the problem we have now is because of a distributed workforce, pre-pandemic, we're all in an office. The network, the Wi-Fi, the laptops were all locked down and secured, and the security professional was happy that they had a, a fairly high level of, of protection. You move people onto private public networks, and you've got a whole new can of worms to deal with, and you've got other people using devices in the home. So companies like yours can only do so much. You've got to realize that the human is the last mile. And why I talk about two-factor on personal accounts, Gmail is the hacker's 
paradise. Once I'm into your Gmail account and you sent that password file a few weeks ago and they find that, your corporate network is at risk. And people don't kind of realize that. The reason Hillary Clinton lost the 2016 election was because her chief of staff had a phishing attempt and they got into his Gmail. That's right, yeah. That's pretty simple. Um, so you can lose elections on the basis of a, of a hack. So on that, you know, and we, we have a lot of business owners that listen to this podcast and, and they're not necessarily technology business owners. They're business, whether they're insurance companies or whatever. As a rule, do you think businesses do enough to protect their companies or their employees or their customers' data? Do you think we as an industry should be doing more to educate those companies as to what you know what they can do? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, the person who uh, drafted the GDPR legislation is now saying it's no longer fit for purpose because when you've got people at home, you've got data at rest on a laptop, customer data. So I'm sure you do, but here's a checklist for people at home. Do you have whole disk encryption on your laptop? If you don't and someone steals your physical laptop and takes the hard drive out, all that customer data is exposed. When you leave your laptop and go to the kitchen or go out, do you lock it down? No, you don't. Well, what happens if someone actually gets in there and can... So little things like that. And so it's security hygiene to do that. So again, I don't think people are doing this because we race to get people laptops and devices to work from home. Yes, we probably have some level of VPN to secure that. But there's the physical security that we don't think about. And if people are going to be at home more days than in the office, if I was a chief security officer right now, I wouldn't have any hair left. I would be saying, how the hell do we secure all this? But more importantly, how do we educate people that as well as doing a day-to-day job, you've got customer data at rest on the laptop on your kitchen table. And if someone breaks in and steals that, we're in big trouble. I absolutely agree. And you know what? I'd go one step further in saying a lot of this stuff needs to be taught at schools too. Because if it's if it's taught at school, you know, the basic premise of locking your keyboard before you walk away, I do it all the time. It's always been drummed yeah. into me. And I, I, I teach it with my kids. And if I don't, if I see their computer on at home, I'll go and put, you know, I'll put the cricket on or I'll put on a website or, or something and say, yeah, you shouldn't have left it open. So for me, I, I think we should be doing a lot more in the schools to teach about 2FA and and locking down your laptop and 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 you know whole disk protection and so forth. But even pa- even passwords, I've been using a password manager for the last ten years, and I, and again, I won't expose a good friend of mine. I have permission to tell this story, but not who it is. This person who shall name nameless literally writes their passwords on pieces of paper. Now I have transitioned to a password manager. I use one password, and there are others available. Actually, I've done this on stage. I was the person that had three passwords, a short, medium, and long, and I would use those three because I can remember them. And when I started doing that, I ran uh, password hygiene from one password, and it showed me how many compromised sites there were and everything else, and it showed me my password hygiene. I have about 1,300 individual sites that all are in my password manager, all have different passwords. I don't know my Amazon password. I don't know my Twitter password. Don't need to. I also have the password manager protected with two-factor authentication. And even though it takes me a four or five seconds longer to get into a site because I've either got to do a code or whatever, it means that I'm a little bit more secure. And so you're right. If we start that in schools, talking about password hygiene, it means that when they go into the corporate environment, they're going, well, of course, I have different passwords for every every website that I use. But I'm kind of the tech guru for all of my friends. Uh, and so some of them have you know enterprise-grade Wi-Fi in their home. Others have got password managers. But I can even do so much. Uh, it's got to be a systemic uh, education process because we secure our bank accounts with two-factor and we lock it, lock things away. Why don't we secure our customer data in the same way? I agree. I completely agree. And I think 
I think it's down to our industry and and certainly uh, companies like Matt Cloud and and others out there to to do a lot of that education to the business owners that we look after, but also to help uh, to help the kids coming through. So I agree. The last question I want to ask you because it's something that you you brought up in one of your talks that I heard and and I loved it. And it was about virtual assistants and the possibility of AI removing the horrors of being on hold for hours or, you know, looking for better prices for insurance or booking our holidays and, and that kind of thing. The the premise of all the data that's available to us now and the ability of, of machines to actually learn our chosen preferences is something I'm really interested to hear more on. And and you speak so eloquently about it. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you spoke about in, in your session that you did the other week? So the concept is the digital agent. So your mobile phone knows more about you and your spouse. It knows the next meeting you have, what's in your bank account, uh, where you're going on holidays. It just knows everything about you. And so you think about it, the minute of renewing your car insurance, what you do at the moment is you go, oh, I've got to renew my car insurance. So I go to a price comparison website. And what most people don't realize is the top option has paid to be there. So it's not always the best option. And that takes me a while. I've got to be in hold, et cetera, et cetera. What spawned the idea, a few years ago, Google released a product called Google Duplex. And the use case was, there's a, there's a video on this, and it's, it's live and working at the moment. A lady gets a text from her husband saying, I've got a babysitter, let's go out to dinner. And so she says, hey, Google, book a table for two at El Cocotero restaurant for seven o'clock. Now, the assistant says, this is Google, the AI basically talks back and says, I'll do that, but what about 8 o'clock if 7 o'clock's not available? She says, fine. The Google AI then makes a phone call and the AI talks to a human at the restaurant. Hi, Cockatoo Restaurant, can I help you? Uh, I'm the Google assistant. This call may be recorded. I'd like to make a booking for 2 for 7 o'clock. And the human says, can't do 7, can you do 8? The AI knows about the options and says 8 is fine and books it. And even during the call, the AI goes, "Mm mm-hmm. And it sounds like a human. So it got me thinking, my digital agent of the future, one, it can do that in terms of voice assistance, but it knows everything about me. So it knows when my car insurance is due. It knows it's due in, in April. So rather than me having to go and do all that, it goes off and it does a digital deal with all of the providers that I might look at. And let's say actually say it's not car insurance, it's health insurance. And it sees that particular healthcare provider is offering a deep discount if I give a one-time hash of my Fitbit health information. My AI, my digital agent, knows my preferences, does the deal, and messages me back saying, I've just got a new provider, and it's, it's a discount. Now, what this means is I never have to talk to call center again. I never actually have to read advertising again. So if you're a marketer out there, you're going to be throwing something at the screen or the, the speaker right now because we're going to have to write ads for robots because all of my new tape doing all this will be taken away because it knows all about us. I would actually pay, I reckon I'd pay between 500 and 1,000 pounds a year to have a machine to essentially be my digital agent, do everything for me. I would, in some ways, tell it, you know, what are the options for a holiday in March? It would have to go off and look at government regulations, see what's available, look at my preferences, all that sort of thing, and do it for me. When I was at IBM, I was very fortunate as a partner. I had 25% of a lady called Karen who would do all the things for me, like booking travel and expenses. She knew my preferences. She knew where I liked to sit on the plane, all those sort of things. So you're, you're not replacing people, but the minute of life gets done by digital agents and, and it will move beyond talking to the assistant, to the assistant thinking for you. But it then means if you're a company wanting to market to me, you can't get to me through an email because it gets blocked by my digital agent. You've got to be so enticing that the AI goes, hmm, I think Andrew might be interested in that. I'm going to let that one through. Wow. So it's almost an electronic gatekeeper. It is. And, and we need yeah. one, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. That's fantastic. 
but we're five to seven years away from that. I, I will see that in five to seven years. Wow. Okay. That's going to be interesting. And and when it does come out, Andrew, I'm going to say I heard that five or seven years ago on the Vanguard podcast. So that's going to be great. <laughs> we could speak for hours, I'm sure. And there's so many things that we could probably continue to go over. But the way I like to finish off our podcast here, Andrew, is, is with a quick fire three. And the first question I like to ask is, what do you wish you knew when you started in business or in your career that you do now? And as a futurist, that could be an interesting question, right? It's easy. The power of networks. I joined LinkedIn in 2004. My boss at the time said, you should join this. I thought, was it a pyramid selling scheme? 32 people were already on it that should be on it. And I joined it and haven't looked back. The power of your networks globally, so important. On that, networking side of things and we used to go to events all the time and you know the networking was all about events and face to face and that's all changed so yes and no i i've still networked a lot online through linkedin and other other things but again it's your digital footprint what is your digital first impression so when someone types my name in now there are actually 16 andrew grills around the world two of them on my linkedin which is kind of weird getting messages from yourself <laughs> of course but if you could put my name into google what comes up is what i want you to see because i'm very very passionate about you knowing how I can help people. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. What did or does inspire you or who does? Well, one of my uh, inspiring futurists is Arthur C. Clarke, the, the fact that he could predict the future and he was so passionate about what might happen and he believed in his conviction. I wish he'd be able to do it uh, not having a 30-year gap between it happening, but people like that really inspire me. Tim Berners-Lee, 30-plus years ago, had this idea for an internet-worked system of computers and, and that's become the World Wide Web. That's really inspirational. And people who are working in the healthcare industry that are using technology to help save lives, the fact that we've had a vaccine developed in under 12 months is phenomenal. phenomenal. And part of that's been yeah. through technology. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And and as we know, back home in Australia, I think uh, the, the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine is just coming off the production line in Melbourne now as well. So to, yeah, be able to, yeah. to be able to get all that and go to these different different corners of the world and produce a vaccine or drug to the same standards and so forth, I, I think I think's phenomenal. I absolutely agree with that. Final question I've got for you. As a futurist, what industries or businesses excite you these days? And, and maybe looking into that crystal ball, what is going to be something that jumps out at us in the next five or 10 years? It's a four-letter word. It's data. Companies that can leverage data, but do it in a sensitive way. So I don't want you to hoover up all of my data. Recently, Apple, hats off, have been even doubling down more on privacy. If you look at an app that you want to download, the app developer now has to expose what level of detail it's going to get from you. If you compare Apple versus Google versus Facebook, it's very interesting in terms of what data they need. So companies that understand that there's a value exchange from my data, my data is worth something. Uh, I talked about the digital agent. I'm happy to pay for a digital agent to do things for me. But I think we'll have a time, and in fact, Tim Berners-Lee has been working on a project called Solid with the, with the MIT crew. I will own my data. And so if Facebook want to actually access my birth date or my preferences, they will have to talk to my personal cloud, and there will be a value exchange because Facebook will realize there's some value in my data. Companies that understand the value exchange of data will do very well, and consumers will flock to them. Wow. Really interesting. One interesting question. I think it's an interesting question. Are we still going to see LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter in 10 years' time? Yes, we will, because no one can touch them. Um, there is really no competitor to LinkedIn, and Microsoft have done a great job with the AI behind that. It will evolve. If yeah. you think about it, everyone thought that LinkedIn was a site you went to if you're looking for a job. 
now the Gartner report shows that LinkedIn is a site people go to to work out if you're worth being sold to or sold from. Yeah. Um, Facebook will ebb and flow. Back to my article, just, uh, just my idea a few seconds ago, I will own the data, and so Facebook will have to work out what to do with that. And back in our home country, the first of many discussions between Google and Facebook about the power of data and the value of data have happened, and that you expect to see more. There are other sites that evolve, but you need a massive amount of people using it on a daily basis, like the LinkedIn, Google, and those sort of things. Look at Twitter. I used to be the hugest fan of Twitter. It's it's kind of tumbleweeds at the moment because it has, has served its purpose. and I think. Um, the ones that survive will add some real business value. I mean, Twitter, the fact I can't edit a tweet in 2021, come on. No, that's true. That's absolutely true. To, to not being able to do that, you've got to delete it and start again. So, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. Andrew, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation this morning. It's been great. It's also good to speak to someone with a, a similar accent, of course. <laughs> There's so much information on your website and you offer so many different things in your career, keynote speaking. Uh, sell through the screen training sessions. How can people listen to you? Give yourself a plug on your website and your podcast as well. Really simple way to find me, futurist.london. Everything is there. Think of what I do and where I live, futurist.london. It's all there. Fantastic. Andrew, thanks so much for your time this morning and have a great summer. Thanks, Scott. Good to talk to you. Thanks again, Andrew, for being such a wonderful guest and giving us an insight into your journey and also what may be around the corner in technology. You know, one of the things the pandemic has brought forward are a lot of future predictions and most importantly, the distributed and remote workforce now, which has been brought forward about 10 years. It's, it's amazing. But the other thing about that is the way that introverts now are being looked at as better leaders or better managers for those organisations that have that distributed or remote workforce. Thanks again, Andrew. There's a lot in this podcast that will really resonate with our listeners, and I really appreciate your time. Our next guest is an entrepreneur, technology marketing expert, and business motivator, and I can't wait for our listeners to hear her amazing story of success. Have a fantastic April, everyone, and please remember to submit any potential guests you'd like to hear and subscribe so you don't miss any episode of the Vanguard podcast. Finally, I want to wish a very happy birthday to our fantastic editor, Amanda, and my son, Andrew, who is turning 14 today. Remember, everyone, take care, stay safe, and keep on innovating.